Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Um, we're currently in a series in the book of Genesis, and last week we began in Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. And if you listened last week, uh, one of the things we talked about is one of the best ways to understand Genesis 1 is it's like a home story. So it's God forming and building this home for him and for us to inhabit and to dwell in. And now we arrive at Genesis 2, and it is just as significant and dazzling and absolutely spectacular. But whereas Genesis 1 takes this kind of wide-angle lens on the creation of the world, Genesis 2 zooms in and kind of intimately focuses in on the creation of humanity. So a way to understand these first two chapters of the Bible, they're almost like two different documentaries of the same event that take a different angle. And whereas Genesis 1 takes this wide-angle lens of the creation of the whole world and kind of gets at the heart of the purpose of the world, so Genesis 2 reveals to us and focuses on the bleeding heart of what it means to be a human. And what do we find in Genesis 2? We find a love story, a romance Makes a lot of sense in some ways. If Genesis 1, you have this home story, Genesis 2, what follows it, is the love story that's happening inside the home. And it rivals Jane Austen, as we'll see. And believe it or not, I know it's weird to think that at the creation of everything, there would be this love story, but it's through this love story that the Bible penetrates the question of what it means to be human. It's gonna teach us, as we'll see, that love is at the center of why we were created. You were created for love to be a receptacle of love. You were created to love. And yet we're gonna see that the love story that the Bible tells in creation is far different and far exceeds and is far better than anything that Hollywood or the Academy or the Beatles or Oprah or whoever uh, is telling about the story of love and about our humanity. And that's because this love story is good news for everybody. It's good news, regardless of how old you are, how young you are, whether or not you're in a relationship, it is good news. So get excited and grab a Bible. I do want you to to follow with me through this in the Bible. I will grab mine and uh, flip with me to the very beginning of the Bible to Genesis 2. And this morning, pretty simply, we're going to dive into this story and we're going to look into this romance at the beginning of the world and then see why it's so significant for us literally today and all of our life. It's pretty awesome. So flip with me to Genesis 2, and we're going to begin in verse 5. So beginning in Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So God forms the man out of dust. Significance there, it's out of the stuff of the earth and he shapes him and there he is, Uh, except he's alive. It's like a machine with no electricity yet. And that's when he leans in and intimately, this is such a beautiful gesture, He breathes into him the life, 
the breath of life into his nostrils. And then, behold, the man becomes a living creature. And so God's looking at this man that he's just created, who's alive, but like any good father, uh, he knows he just can't hang around all day and twiddle his thumbs. So he's thinking, let's get this guy a job. Let's give him some directions in life. And that's exactly what happens. There are so many riches in these verses about the rivers and the lands, and they're really important. I can't really focus on that right now. Go with me to verse 15. We're going to pick up when he, what the Lord does next. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now we see that this guy's got a job. Way to go, Adam. Uh, He's to work and keep the garden of God. And actually those two words, work and keep, are really special. This is an amazing privilege Adam is getting because that's the language used for the priests and the Levites and the ministers in the temple of God later on in the Bible. So Adam is actually being called to a priestly ministry here. He's meant to protect and to nurture sacred space where God dwells. And uh, if you listened last week or if you've read Genesis 1 before, you can tack work and keep to all the amazing other things that humanity is called to in the beginning of creation, like multiply and fill and be fruitful culturally, Uh, subdue and rule, be kings and queens. It's amazing privilege. But on top of the vocation, uh, God gives him commandments. This is really significant. God gives him a command to eat from certain trees and not from other trees. We'll talk more about that next week in Genesis 3. But for now, think of this like clear instructions in life, a clear direction on how to flourish in the world. So by verse 17, Adam is turning into this pretty respectable guy. Um, he's alive. He's got a job. He's got some direction in life on things to do. Things are looking up. I mean, for many of us who are parents, uh, this is today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. For many of us who are parents, this is our dream for our kids, right? If one day they could become contributing members of the economy and kind of stay in the lanes of like society and culture and everything, we would be thrilled. Like, but actually, that reveals something to us sometimes about those are, that's what we, where we kind of focus in all of life. If we can get a job, if we can do the right thing, if we can kind of get our ducks in a row, then we'll all be good. Both of those are absolutely a part of Genesis 2, a vocation for humanity, for Adam, this guy, and also the commandments of God. It's really significant. They're both here. And yet, Genesis 2 does not stop there, and this is really significant. This is going to get into the importance of this chapter. God created Adam for something beyond merely a vocation and obedience. And that in and of itself is a challenge to legalism. It's a challenge to workaholism. There's multiple sermons we could just preach there, but it goes on. Look at the very next verse in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or a helper corresponding to him. God looks at Adam, all respectable with his job and his directions in life, and he acknowledges that this man is incomplete. There's something that's not good. And God's choice of words there is very significant because after the creation of each day in Genesis 1, what does he say? It's good. And at the end of all Genesis 1, he says, it's very good. 
And yet here we have something that is not good. And what's not good? What's not good is that Adam is alone. He's alone. If you tried to pick up that Bible word alone and carry it, it would break your back. He's alone. He has no helper corresponding to him. What is God getting at here? Why does the Bible go to such lengths to point this out and say this is a problem? Well, look at verse 19. Let's see how the rest of the Bible explains it. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for the man, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You see, the problem was that the man could not do the job he was called to do, and he could not live the life he was called to live by himself. By himself, he was not fully functional. He was just one part, one piece of a greater puzzle. And he named all the animals, but no other living creature fit the bill. Nothing else fit the puzzle piece that would complete what this man was created for. Something or someone was missing. So let's see how God solves the problem. Pick with me back up in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God solves the problems, the problem of Adam's aloneness, of his isolation through the creation of woman. And the way that he does this is really important for the rest of the Bible. He causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while Adam is asleep, God basically cracks Adam into two pieces. The Hebrew word for rib doesn't really mean like an actual rib bone. Um, it means something more like side. So don't just think rib bone. When I was a kid, I always thought that was super weird. God like grabs one of his ribs. And it also seemed a little bit demeaning to women. But remember what is Adam made out of? Dust. So everybody's made from interesting things here. Uh, this is closer to poetry than it is to anatomy. The point is God is taking some of the stuff of Adam and he's building woman. Something that's the same but different. Someone that's the same but different. And the key to understanding the woman are those words in verse 18, which is a helper that is suitable or fit or corresponding to the man. Now, ladies, don't worry. There's nothing belittling about the word helper here at all. In the Bible, helper is sometimes used for like armies coming to save the day. Most often it's used for God himself. It's never used for anything of inferior rank. So it's not belittling at all. It's just like a, a corresponding, something that comes in to complement and help the other. And then that other word translated as fit or suitable means something like the perfect match, the exact right puzzle piece. So what is the woman? This woman that God created is the yin to Adam's yang. She's not the same as Adam. She's different. But she is the perfect partner to join with Adam to accomplish all that he's been called to do. 
He could not do it alone. It was not good. He was only one piece of the whole. And woman completes the picture. Adam was like part of an electric circuit. She's the other charge that comes in and it goes and it lights up. Now together they can subdue and rule properly. Now together they can multiply and fill. Now they can work and keep like the Power Rangers with their powers combined. This garden is going to blow up. So there's an extreme vocational practical practicality to, to men and women and what happens when a man and a woman comes together. It's amazing. But woman has not just come to help Adam in his vocation in the practical sense. She's also created for something deeper. Um, some of you might be familiar with the modern movie version of Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley. Uh, there's a lot of debates around which is the best Pride and Prejudice, and we'll get into that now. But if you've never seen it before, our church warden, Randy Berkey, watches it like every Friday night, and he would love uh, to really explain and, and get you into the details of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, he wanted me to mention that before this sermon. Anyways, there's a scene at the end of that movie. It's one of the greatest love stories, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. There's a scene at the end of that movie which all the tension um, and the pride and the prejudice that's in the movie and the relationships leads to this one moment where at the perfect sunrise of dawn, Kara Knightley has this gorgeous dress and she's walking through some wheat fields. And here comes Mr. Darcy and he's got a really awesome puffy shirt on and big leather boots and those epic 18th century coats that have like a thousand buttons. And he's strolling through the fields and their eyes lock and they come together. And it is the climax, the resolution of this amazing story. When woman is brought to man and man says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's not saying, finally, I get some help around here. Finally, you get, you're here to help me accomplish all this stuff. Here, you do this stuff. I'll do this stuff. And together we can like finally do the job that I've been called to do. No. It's more like Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett meeting. Adam is saying, at last, you're what has been missing. You're what I desire. You're what my soul has longed for. Eve has come for love, for intimacy. It's two people who are made of the same stuff and yet different and distinct coming together for physical, emotional, and spiritual union. And we know that this is the emphasis that the scriptures are leading us to because look what comes immediately after Adam saying, therefore, a man shall leave his mom and his dad and hold fast, cling, cleave to his wife, and they shall become, not like one, they shall become one, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Cue the string music. Da, 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 da. <laughs> this is a blistering, joyful, candescent romance. It's the direct solution to the problem of Adam's aloneness. And it is the climax of all of creation. The next verse is about the serpent in the, in the garden. We'll get there next week. This is literally the rising crescendo of Genesis 1 and 2. The two becoming one. Ah. What in the world? What do we do with this? Why is this the climax of what the Bible wants to show us about our humanity and our existence and our genesis? 
On the one hand, it is absolutely about God instituting human marriage. It really is. Um, Our understanding of family, gender, sexuality, children, marriage, all come back to this beautiful chapter in so many ways. And we have just raked across kind of the surface of it, but there is gold in them, their hills. Um, So there's a lot here. But remember, I said at the beginning, this is more than a simple love story. It's not just about Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Somehow it gets to the bleeding heart of who you are and who you were created to be, regardless of whether you're married or single or divorced or young or old or male or female. And that's because this story and human marriage itself is a picture that points us to a deeper and more profound and eternal love story. It is like a shadow that leads us to a deeper reality. Think of walking on a, on a sidewalk in the afternoon. Your shadow is a perfect silhouette of you, right? You raise an arm, your shadow raises an arm. You jump, the shadow jumps. But the shadow is not the real thing, right? It leads to the real thing. If we were to stop and read this story merely in terms of human marriage, even though it is absolutely about human marriage, if we were to stop there, it would be like studying the shadow of someone and thinking that that was all there is. And often, this is what it feels like to understand ourselves, right? And especially the things that Genesis 2 is getting into. It feels like we're dealing with shadows, lesser truths of deeper things, but we're not sure how to access those things. We know love is real and that it's like Song of Songs says, stronger than fire. You can't buy it with the world. It's like a flood of emotion inside of us. We know we have deep longings. We know that our sexuality and our gender is deeply significant and has deep impact on us as humans. But we want to know what's behind it. And in the shadows, we grope to try to understand it. Um, One of the things I find fascinating is that what psychology and science primarily have to offer us here about our humanity comes from looking around us for data, and often that's looking to chimpanzees who have striking similarities to humans. But when we do that, it's like we're looking further down the shadow. And that can never reveal to us the mystery of humanity. The Bible teaches us not to look further down the shadow towards creation, but in order to understand who we are and what we are, to look up the shadow towards our creator. And what do we find when we follow the shadow of Genesis 2? to its deeper root. First of all, I don't have a ton of time to get into this today. It leads us to the triune God. And what do you know? God himself is multiple persons who are one, who have existed before the foundation of the world in love and in unity and diversity and in communion. Literally, the story of God himself, the life of God, is a love story. And therefore, Adam could never have fully borne the image of God by himself. Because God's a community. He had to be with another. Adam had to be in love in order to image God. What? But it gets even better than that. And this is where it gets crazy. The Bible is really clear and I hope this becomes clear over the next couple passages we read, that the marriage in Genesis 2, this picture here, leads us to a deeper love story 
besides Adam and Eve, and besides the life of God himself. And in the end, it is a picture of God and us. It's about our love story with God. The great shock and surprise of Christianity is not that God just didn't create us with the capacity for love like him, but God created you to be in a communion of love with him. This is always the intention from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, God refers to the people of Israel as like his bride, like he's in a loving relationship. That word, which is so significant, that's translated as hold fast, therefore a man shall hold fast to his wife. Moses in Deuteronomy literally calls the people of Israel to do that to the Lord. Hold fast to the Lord. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. Therefore, love the Lord your God. So this was always God's intention. Not that we would just experience this type of candescent love with other people, but that we would have that with God. Maddie's going to lead us in a song in a second that says, the chorus is, I was made by you, I was made for you, and I am unfulfilled without true communion, full communion. Nothing could be more true about this passage and what it reveals to us. So that's amazing. And yet, we have to talk about this. We talked about this last week too. But we have to say that often when we hear all this, there's a part of us, maybe you're feeling this, that leaps. That's like, yes, I am created for that. I am created to love and be in this. But there's another part of you that might more fully identify with the problem of Adam's aloneness. So you hear God say, it's not good for man to be alone. And you think, that's me. I'm not Adam and Eve living happily ever after. I feel like I'm more in the alone stage. And by the way, you could feel this way whether you are married or not. You feel like you're still in the shadows, that you were born to have desires which are unmet. This is because in our sin and brokenness, unity becomes disunity. Love becomes hate. Communion with God becomes twisted. And this is exactly what we see happen as Genesis is going to go on. Adam and Eve are isolated. They're divided from God because of their sin. Even their own relationship becomes not a picture of communion. It becomes this battlefield, the relation between husband and wife. Thus, sin muddies the shadow, which is meant to point us to a deeper communion. And that it distorts, it defaces our experience of family, of marriage, sexuality, gender, relationships. And that in turn distorts our picture of God. Now that is really bad news. And I wish that I was being over the top when I say something like that. But you all know these things in our life are the sources of our deepest pains our deepest hungers, our greatest confusion. And that is because those things are the bleeding heart of our humanity. Those are the places which most fully God created in us to lead and point to this deeper divine romance that we were meant to be a part of. And because of that, the enemy attacks them. And sin distorts it and twists it and confuses it. And because of that, we end up back at the same place like Adam before Eve. Alone is the experience. Alone. That's bad news. But we say, talk a lot about the gospel 
which means good news. And the gospel is that God decided not to leave us alone. Just as he saw Adam being alone in his isolation and said, this is not good, and brought forth Eve. And he brought forth that unity to be the climax of creation in Genesis 2. So God sees us, God sees you in your isolation and your aloneness. And he seeks to reconcile all things to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of dust, the stuff of the earth. He was born of Mary. And yet he was full of the breath of God, right? The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And the New Testament gives two really interesting names to Jesus. One is the new Adam. Like a new version of the same dude. And the other, which even Jesus uses for himself, is the bridegroom. And guess where Jesus performed his first miracle? At a wedding. The place he decides to come onto the scene and declare what he's all about is at this party. It's a wedding. And the wedding feast is getting super lame, if you're familiar with the wedding at Cana, because they're running out of wine. And then, like a bride's... Uh, a groomsman that like dances to get everybody back in the wedding, Jesus makes the party awesome again. And he does this by turning all the water into wine. That's like the best wine. He transforms it. And at the party, he says this fascinating thing. He says, my time has not yet come. Which is basically him saying, I'm not the groom today, but one day I'm going to be the groom. Remember, before Eve was created... Adam was longing and looking for a wife, right? He was searching through creation, naming all the animals, but no one was right. No one was the mother of all living, Eve. He was looking for someone to share his priestly calling to work and keep the garden, right? He was looking for someone to partner with in order to subdue and rule. He was looking for someone with whom he could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he was looking for a lover. He was looking for a bride. And it is the same for Christ. Jesus came for a bride. He came for a wife. Jesus was longing to say, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But remember, in order for God to solve the problem of Adam's isolation, he first had to fall into a deep, deep sleep where he literally gave up some of his body so that his bride could be created. In the profound wisdom of God, this is exactly how God solves the problem of your own isolation, of your own sin, of your feeling estranged from God and others in your life, of your feeling like you have a flood of desires that are not satisfied and do not have a home. The way that he solves that problem is by Jesus, the new Adam, the new bridegroom, the one who has come for his lover, falls into the deepest of sleeps on death on the cross. And in death, he returns to the dust, which was our curse. In that sleep, he bears the suffering of our own isolation, of our own aloneness. And yet while he sleeps the sleep of death, as the new Adam, something happens the gospel reading that Tressa read this morning goes to great length, John does, to make sure you know that somebody comes up to Jesus after he's died and pierces his side, his side, and out of it comes blood and water. 
and we've talked about this before, but since the earliest days of Christianity, Christians have seen this as representing the sacraments of the church, baptism and Eucharist. And what is the Eucharist? It's Jesus's body, right? And they therefore see in this moment the creation of the bride of Christ, which is the church. While the new Adam is asleep, the bride is born from his side. Jesus gives up his body for you, for the creation and the eternal life of the church. And yes, it is so that as a Christian, you can share in his priestly calling and vocation. Same as Adam and Eve. Yes, it is so that you can be a prince and princess in the king. Subdue and rule applies to you. Obviously, it's Jesus' kingdom, but he calls you to participate in his ruling of the kingdom. Yes, it is like Christ so that you can be a Psalm 1 person and follow the commandments of God and be what Adam and Eve did not do, which is break the commandments. He's calling the church to love the commandments of God and to flourish under them. But more than anything, it is so that he can love you and that you can love him. Jesus came and died so that every part of your deepest passions and desires might be utterly satisfied in the fires of his love. That our creator God might utterly unite himself to all things at the end of creation. And that is exactly what happens in the Bible. The reading that Dan read, at the end of all things, the two become one. God and his people come together and they consummate their relationship. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the mystery of marriage is profound in that it refers to Christ in the church. And that means, here's the, the penny dropping out of all of this. That means that Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two shall become one flesh. That is about you and Jesus. For those of you who are married, no one will be given or received in marriage in heaven. Your marriage will end, but your participation in the marriage between Jesus and his church is eternal. That's the one that lasts. For those of you who are single, our theology of singleness is immense and profound. And the Bible says that in all actuality, you are betrothed. You're a part of this marriage. This is the deep romance that you were created for. Oh man, there's so much we could say from this. Thank you for hanging with, with me through that. That was a lot of Bible, but isn't that just the best? Here's a couple things I want us to take away from this. First, for many of you, you might have wondered why the Bible and Christian theology makes such a big deal uh, about stuff like sexuality and family and gender and, and why our bodies are the way we are. Christians think really deeply about these things. And I hope you can see that these things point your humanity, who you are, points to deeper truths about God and our eternal romance with him, which are beyond our wildest imagination. But if you mess with the reflection and the shadow, you distort the real thing. Our sexuality, our imaging of God in male and female, he created him, male and female, he created, cracks him into two, them. 
and our families, all of this is not carnal and just pure physical, animalistic, meaningless stuff. Rather, we believe that these things, and I hope you can see that these things possess extreme spiritual and sacramental weight and significance. They're attached to deep and profound things about God himself and about your eternal destiny, quite literally. And thus we tamper with them to our peril. Now, of course, in our sin, every single one of us has tampered with these things. All of us have wounds and brokenness and confusion around family and sexuality and gender and all these things that are in this. But that is the gospel that Jesus comes back, first of all, to forgive you and love you. He's so generous and merciful with us. And also he comes in to reorder things so that we might be able to experience and open ourselves up to the things which is pointing, the love of Jesus, the love of God. And finally, do you see how much Jesus loves you? It is absolutely true to say that Jesus sees you and says, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He suffered and died for you so you could be born again. He gave up his body for you. That's why we celebrate the Eucharist every week and remind ourselves, I'm alive because of this man's death. So that you could become one with him. So that you could feel his love for you. If you're not in a relationship with him, if you're watching this and you've never tasted the love of God and you're like, I, I, there's no way God could love me like that. I'm not that lovely. Open yourself up to him. Turn from your ways, Jesus would always say. Turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. Lay hold of it by faith. Open yourself, open your heart up and ask Jesus, Jesus, I do want to come to you and have my life reordered by you. Experience your love and become one with you. He is what you want and there is no communion, there's no completeness apart from his love. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.